This is the remix. You want to go? Or? Oh, you can go. Oh, I don't want to. Okay. In motion. Nope. Taysom Moore run it. Up the middle. Two, three. And that is going to be a Saints touchdown. Touch to Taysom. Touchdown. Taysom Hill keeps it to the left. 10, 5, and to Taysom. Touchdown. Left side. That is a New Orleans Saints touchdown. Nine yards. Taysom is going to throw it across the middle, and that is going to be a touchdown to Adam Troutman. Taysom to Troutman for the touchdown. From the right hash mark, Taysom Hill keeps it, looks for first down, and he's got it, and he's got room to run. 50, 40, 30, 20. Will he get caught from behind? That is going to be a touchdown. Taysom Hill to Taysom TD. You know, he kept squirting through there and gets the snap. Waits, flushed out of the pocket, starts to run, and he's going to run to the 20, to the 15. Oh, and to take a hit on a slide, and there's no flag, and now we got a scrum going. And markers everywhere, and we got a full-blown Pierce Sixer. You sense any give up in the locker room? Hell no. What kind of questions that, Phil? Were well, you happy satisfied with the uh, effort that your team put out today? <laughs> satisfied with the effort? We just got smashed. Like... What are we talking about here, guys? I just crushed my dreams. Boom. Sadness. That's the one. <laughs> I need more coaches to come on. We just got smashed. What are we talking about here? Uh, Jared, since you played Taysom Hill highlights, and amazingly, none of those were repeats, uh, <laughs> did you start him at yes! tight end in your fa- Okay. Yes! All right. You, dra- you drafted him. You were like, I drafted this guy at tight end. I don't know if it's a good idea. And then you didn't play him the first week when he scored a touchdown. He had like four yesterday, so I'm glad to hear you actually played him. Yeah. <laughs> also started the Miami defense. Ah, it probably didn't go very yeah, well. Yeah, those I'm things guessing, sort of I'm canceled guessing each other. Tays- no, I'm guessing Taysom Hill did more than cancel that out. Uh, right? Had to have. It's, it's a tight end that had four touchdowns. So, also, you play that, and I'm guessing part of that is because I have yelled on this show about why the hell does Taysom Hill get the ball so much. I yelled that when there was Sean Payton coaching Drew Brees with Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas. Yesterday, Alvin Kamara did play, but Chris Olave, their best receiver who was playing, left the game, meaning their next best passing option was the tight end Adam Troutman and Andy Dalton's the quarterback. Taysom Hill might pro- they probably should actually be the quarterback on a full-time basis. I don't have as big of an issue with it now as I used to. Uh, but should we be discussing, by the way, the radio call of the Taysom Hill t- touchdown? T- Taysom? And you don't why, like the why stutter? We're stuttering? <laughs> like, like what? What is that? T- t- Taysom. That's I don't know. I maybe there's an actual reason for it. Otherwise, it's just terrible. Uh, I mean, otherwise, it's downright offensive. Like the like it, what it reminds me of is uh, Billy Madison with the like t- t- today, Junior. <laughs> I've seen that movie. I know that movie <laughs> reference. I love it. There we, Adam found one. He found one that I've seen. Good job. All right. You know, you, last week when you were out at a golf course, we kept playing like Happy Gilmore and Caddyshack cuts, and you guys didn't react to either of them. Haven't seen Caddyshack. Did you play Happy Gilmore once? Yes. I don't remember those. I have seen Happy Gilmore, too. Maybe the, why are the only movies I've seen are like late Adam 90s Sanders. Adam Sandler movies? <laughs> That's it. Uh, all right. The Raiders play the Chiefs Monday night football. Raiders looking to avoid a 1-4 and four start before they go into the bye. But outside of the whole strategy, scheming, anything related to the actual play on the field, 
Pat Mahomes, in a video the Chiefs put out after they beat Tampa Bay last week, uh, in the locker room when he was sort of like getting the team together, said, make sure y'all come ready this next week. Y'all know who's coming to town. Talking about the Raiders coming to town. Uh, last year, if you remember, the Raiders had a team. They had a team huddle that started out on like the 20, 25-yard line, and then all of a sudden all the players ran to midfield to have that meeting. Kansas City went on to win 48-9. to do you think Patrick Mahomes like actually remembers that and uses that as some sort of fuel rivalry to beat the Raiders? Absolutely he does. How much else do the Chiefs have to go on when it comes to that sort of thing right now, right? How many how often are the Chiefs disrespected? Not disrespected by anyone. They they need motivation. They need things to keep them sharp. They've been in five consecutive AFC championship games. They need someone to give them that Michael Jordan, and I took it personally. And <laughs> the Raiders, under John Gruden, with all of his hubris, were more than happy to do that. And so I think Patrick Mahomes will absolutely remember that. Okay, so is there like a uh, – is it posted up somewhere in their locker room the NFL top 100 that didn't have Patrick Mahomes oh. as the, uh, he, I think he was seventh or something like that. Do you think that's posted anywhere in the Chiefs locker room? Doesn't need to be posted in the Chiefs locker room. All they need is a picture of John Gruden <laughs> driving a bus, and that'll be enough for them to go out and want to smash the Raiders. Okay, what's what's better if you're Patrick Mahomes, if you're the Chiefs? What's better for the fake chip on the shoulder, for the the fuel of being disrespected? Is it? the huddle on the logo before the game or the victory lap around Arrowhead that John Gruden took a couple years ago? Well, which was the one that really pissed off Andy Reid? It was the victory lap, right? And so <laughs> I think it's the victory lap for everyone. And by the way, shout out Andy Reid for an A-plus acting performance uh, in that uh, insurance commercial right now. It, I mean, it was, it was better than I thought it would be. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> uh Andy Reid as a coach in a commercial. How many coaches should be in a commercial? How many coaches would actually be recognized in a commercial? Well, it, there's a difference between should be and should be recognized because male model Sean McVay is pitching us a chunky soup. That's right. And I think you could probably just put him in the commercial regardless of whether he was a football coach. <laughs> he doesn't and need then, the Rams jacket on to sell it. No, he doesn't need uh, he doesn't need any <laughs> NFL branded gear. And I personally now believe that that Brian Dable and his dancing should be featured somewhere uh, in advertisements Wait, because what did I miss? A, what did I miss? Large, Brian Dable, bald, bearded man doing fun things. Am I going to find this if I just search Brian Dable dancing? You should because it was in the locker room after uh, their third oh, yes. victory. So yes, yeah. I see it here. This is okay. All right. Yes, just Brian Dable dancing. Are you? What are you having him sell while he's dancing? Well, it could be like a Weight Watchers thing or something like that, right? Like I, I saw this video of myself and realized it was time to get on the system. Oh, poor Brian Dable. All right, uh, something else on Patrick Mahomes. Here's some numbers from Field Yates on what Mahomes has done to the Raiders. Kansas City against the Raiders with Patrick Mahomes at quarterback. They have averaged 37.4 points per game. That sounds like a lot. It's because it is. Since 1950, the only quarterback to average more points per game against a single opponent with at least five starts is Peyton Manning against the Eagles, and he averaged 40. Um, so Patrick Mahomes has crushed this team in the past. He has rarely needed 
the extra motivation to do so. We talked a little bit about Chandler Jones and Jonathan Abram, two of the weaker links of this defense. I don't know if Chandler Jones is truly a weak link, but he hasn't been as good as expected. We talked about the path the offense needs to sort of, or how the offense could potentially win this game. Is there anything the defense can do? Like, are we just going to sit here and say, hey, Max Crosby's going to have to sack Patrick Mahomes three times? Like, what exactly is there for the defense to do to actually slow down Mahomes enough so they can win the game? Well, think about what it was when they beat them, right? Just like I talked about with them airing out the ball with Derek Carr on the offensive side, what they did against Mahomes when they beat Mahomes was not allow him to make the wild plays outside the pocket, right? They basically kind of kept him, I'm not going to say within the tackle box, but they didn't really let him go wide and start playing the street yard football that we've seen Kyler Murray and others be so good at this year. So I think if you're the Raiders, I'm not sure if you want to try to necessarily put a lot of pressure, blitz, et cetera, to get home on Patrick Mahomes. And look, we have evidence from just last year that the New York Giants went in in the first half of the year last year against the Kansas City Chiefs and played them to a one-score game with Patrick Graham as defensive coordinator and probably an equal or maybe even less uh, amount of talent uh, on that Giants defense that then is on the Raiders defense. So I don't think it's impossible for the Raiders to go in and frustrate Mahomes. But I, like we talked about earlier, the uh, the monster has uh, become sentient. And now we know that Patrick Mahomes is willing to take the shorter throws and the 20 yarders as opposed to the 50 yarders. And that's a problem for everyone. I was actually just going to uh, to follow up on that is if you want to get pressure, you have to get pressure with four. You can't be sending extra people because that's how you get Travis Kelsey just sort of being like, yeah, I'm boxing this guy out. He's not getting the ball. And well, then, there's, there's no need to box out Jonathan Abram. He won't be on the frame anyway. <laughs> He's, he'll be over tackling the cornerback. Um, and then, yeah, the other thing I was going to say is if you look at what the blueprint was before, especially with what Tampa Bay did in that Super Bowl is, you can let him get out of the pocket as long as you can. You have the athletes to like make him go side to side and not be able to take off and do his weird, tricky body run, where yeah. he actually has to still throw it, but he has to throw it from vertical platforms instead of you know from his feet on the ground. Is there? Do we have a phrase for Patrick Mahomes' gait, his running style? It's very giraffe-like. Yeah, I think there needs to somebody needs to come up with a good term for what Patrick Mahomes looks like when he's running. He looks like, I don't know if you ever experienced this, Adam, but I experienced it a lot in Missouri when your friend would be wearing only jeans and not like a shirt, but be running and you'd be playing outside. You'd be like, why are you wearing jeans? Yeah, the, these are the only friends that I associate with. I, <laughs> I make sure that they remove their shirts when they show up and they're only wearing jeans. So, yes, I've absolutely had that experience for years now. Well, see, I think the key Jared, for Jared there in Missouri, they probably didn't have to remove a shirt because they weren't wearing it to That's begin That's exactly with. what I'm saying. Yeah. They show there yeah. was no shirt um, ever involved that day. Well, I think I told you guys the story of when I was playing high school basketball and, and my coach told me never to bring the ball up again because I looked like a crippled yes. gorilla. But <laughs> I, I, I wonder if there's a comparison to be made here. Except I think they want Mahomes running, even if he looks funny while doing so, because generally good fair. things happen. This, this yeah. is absolutely fair. Yeah, they're telling him to keep running like that, not to stop. It's sort of, it's the equivalent of when Draymond Green would shoot, everyone said it looked like he was wearing a backpack. <laughs> It's like Patrick Mahomes. Jared, shh, Jared, shh, 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 shh. No, no, no. He's away from the team right now. He might hear this and come no. after you. 
Be careful, Jared. How's your draw feeling right now? I mean, I purposely didn't draft him. Ah, look at you. Fantasy basketball drafting over here. All right, last thing on the Raiders that I, I did want to get to Adam with. I'm curious if you think this is a big deal. Benjamin Solak, who writes for The Ringer, had a fun graph looking at how teams run the ball, and it was comparing two things. It was one, play-action pass rate, and the other part was runs called from the shotgun and comparing those two teams. And if you look at it from the Raiders' perspective, the Raiders rank 30th in terms of percentage of runs from the shotgun, meaning they don't run from the shotgun. They also rank 30th in play-action pass rate, meaning they're not using play-action hardly at all. Now, generally, play-action is more efficient than non-play-action passing, even if you haven't been running the ball well, it's been proven that you can still uh, have more success passing by going to the play action. And we're getting to a point where teams are having the same, if not more success uh, running out of shotgun. They certainly do in short yardage situations than they do running under center. Is there anything to this about the Raiders being so low in shotgun runs and so low in play action pass rate? You know, I was listening to a podcast the other day with former NFL GM Thomas Dimitrov, and he was talking about McDaniels and saying, I don't throw the word genius around very often, but I do think he is genius offensively. Now, we haven't seen a lot of that yet, but I also want to give McDaniels credit for the fact that this offensive line is so bad that I don't want to judge him on what we're seeing out of the scheme at this point, because I honestly don't know what McDaniels thinks he's going to be able to do. Because when you cut the guy who was supposed to be your starting right tackle coming out of camp and you've switched up the alignment on your offensive line every game because you're searching for the right combination like you're on the price is right, then I think you have to give the coach a little bit of credit and say, I don't know that he really has a lot of options right now to get creative. Yeah, and the criticism for that, like you have to segment it. It goes towards the roster building, the front office, which McDaniels is a part of that decision-making. It goes towards that, but I think you're right. As far as if we're evaluating McDaniels and his long-term ability to be the coach of the Raiders and get the most out of the offense, it self-handicap, right? They did it to themselves, but it is a situation where it's like, all right, can they even throw the ball deep if they want to? Because how long does Derek Carr have? Like, it's it's a very difficult situation to judge what McDaniels actually is going to be. And I guess that can apply to the run game as well and how much play action pass, because that does take a little bit more time. All right, coming up next, it's Bischoff's Breeze, where we look at UNLV football after their loss to San Jose State. Bischoff's Briefs. I'm asking you if you know the difference between right and wrong. I discovered at a very early age that if I talked long enough, I could make anything right or wrong. Bischoff's Briefs. So either I'm God or truth is relative. Bischoff's Briefs. And in either case, booyah. Bischoff's Briefs. UNLV football lost to San Jose State 40-7 on Friday. They were down 23-0 at halftime. They didn't actually score until it was 33-0. But Doug Brumfield left that game with a head injury. He played on three offensive possessions. I will say um, there was, like, trying to figure out where Doug Brumfield got hurt because there wasn't an obvious, oh, yeah, he clearly got hit in the head on this play. There was actually a sack. It was the third play of the game uh, where a 
Brumfield got sacked and a defender's forearm hit him in the helmet. And as Brumfield was getting up, he shook his head a couple of times. That was, to me, the most obvious place where he got hit in the head. Now, he stayed in the game for the rest of that drive and two more. So maybe he played through it for that short period of time, or maybe it happened somewhere else and it just wasn't as obvious. But he did suffer a head injury, probable concussion. I don't think they've officially said so, um, what it is. Now, there is um, a lot of ways this could go for UNLV. Paloma Viacana of Fox 5, she tweeted out yesterday that Marcus Arroyo said Brumfield was back in the building on Sunday and that he's day-to-day with the doctors and the next 48 hours will be indicative of where we're going this week and getting the other guys prepped, which day-to-day and in the building is probably good news for Doug Brumfield being back in a relatively short time frame. Um, But Arroyo saying the indicative of where they're going this week and getting other guys prepared would imply that Brumfield's not going to be able to play this week. So I'm curious, obviously, the timeline's going to be a big deal for Brumfield and for UNLV football, which brings you to the question of, you know, can UNLV win without Doug Brumfield? Cam Friel wasn't bad by any means. You know, he completed 15 to 22 passes, did throw for a touchdown against San Jose State last year. He was the Mountain West Freshman of the Year, but he threw six touchdowns and 11 interceptions. You actually go back and look what other freshmen on offense were any good last year. There weren't any. He kind of won it by default. The difference, though, is that Brumfield, he's played like the best quarterback in the Mountain West this season. Cameron Friel is, you know, maybe you're getting average quarterback play if Cam Friel is in there. And the upcoming schedule of Air Force at Notre Dame, at San Diego State, and Fresno State, those four, it's tough for UNLV probably to win any of those four with Cam Friel in there. San Diego State's not that good, but they're good enough defensively that UNLV probably won't put up many points. Fresno State, if Fresno State doesn't have their quarterback, Jake Hayner, back by then, then UNLV can potentially win that game. If they do have Hayner back, I'd expect Fresno State wins if Cam Friel is in there. I think Brumfield gives you a legitimate shot in three of those four if he's out there. So the question outside of Brumfield's health, but that Brumfield's health is going to determine here, can you know we still get to six wins? And like we talked about earlier with Mike Ramala, Hawaii and Nevada are still on the schedule. Even if UNLV loses these next four tough games, Hawaii and Nevada are still on the schedule. And those are two dreadful teams this season. Even if UNLV loses four in a row, they're going to be favored in those two games against Hawaii and Nevada. Now, if you played out worst case scenario and Brumfield is not able to play in the last two games of the season and it's Cam Friel, then all of a sudden you might be talking about a situation where UNLV, you could see them much, much more easily losing a game at Hawaii or losing that rivalry game to Nevada. But if you tell me it's Doug Brumfield at quarterback, I have a really, really hard time seeing them losing either one of those two. However, there might be some cause for concern here. Regardless of how Doug Brumfield's uh, health goes, UNLV's defense just gave up 40 points to San Jose State. They had not allowed anybody else to score 30 all season long. It was the first game of the season where UNLV did not intercept a pass. It was the most total rushing yards and the most rushing yards per carry that they allowed all season. And UNLV, they basically got torched in every area defensively. They had a tough time covering screens. They had a tough time covering passes down the field. They had a tough time with the zone read. Like It wasn't like San Jose State walked in there and was just, ah, we got great plays that nobody can do. It's two of the more 
common things in college football, the zone read and the screen game that UNLV really struggled with. And the bigger issue that's sort of related to all of that, they couldn't tackle. Like one of the biggest differences in the 2022 defense compared to every other UNLV defense that I've seen, they've tackled pretty well this year. There have not been many games or many plays where they have gotten beat because they missed a tackle or two on a play. They've tackled pretty well, but against San Jose State, they had to get two or three guys to hit the ball carrier just to get them down seemingly every single play. And that to me is a big question for the rest of the season, right? Brumfield's health is number one. Number two is what is this defense the rest of the way? Because if the defense plays like that, they're not winning any of the next four games even with Brumfield at quarterback. And if their defense plays like that, one of those last two against Hawaii and Nevada might actually be in question because if you can't tackle, it might not matter how good your quarterback is, you're going to give up a lot of points and a lot of yards. So I'm curious if that was sort of a one-off and we've seen this defense play at a much higher level this season and that game is sort of going to go away and, and sort of be this anomaly that doesn't matter. Or... Are we about to watch them play Air Force and are we about to watch them get crushed by the option because they can't bring down a single ball carrier with one guy because that's what you need when you play the option. There's going to be Air Force is going to scheme it to where they're going to try to scheme it to where there's not a guy, but where at least it's a one-on-one scenario for whoever has the ball. And if you can't bring guys down in one-on-one scenarios against the option, you're, you're going to give up huge plays and you're going to have no chance to win that game. So that's really the two big questions, the two big concerns, Brumfield's health and what defense do you get the rest of the year from UNLV? So I think it brings up an important question if you're going to point to the Hawaii and Nevada games at the end of the year. What you see from UNLV thus far is they've been able to play pressure-free games. There's really been no game where you looked at UNLV and thought, ah, they need this one. We don't know how this roster and this coaching staff are going to respond in needed games because we haven't seen it here. Year three is going to be the first opportunity to see that. And just to talk about environments where you don't want to have to do that, weird things happen going to Hawaii with that travel. And then you put a rivalry game at the end of the year, and we've watched UNLV enough times against inferior Wolfpack teams not be able to get the job done. So I'm not saying that's the situation they're going to end up in. I'm not saying they're going to lose to Hawaii or, or lose to Nevada. But what I am saying is if you put this team into a situation where all of a sudden they haven't won for the better part of six weeks, it's going to be a very different question than are they talented enough to beat Hawaii or Nevada? Yeah, it'd be much nicer for them if it was not the last two games of the season that we're checking as the, oh, those are easy teams you're automatically going to win. And the points you make are right. If there were any two games on the schedule that you were like, oh, those teams are bad. They're ones that UNLV are going to easily win. Going to Hawaii and playing Nevada are probably the worst two teams to say, oh, yeah, that's an automatic win. You'd much rather those free wins be, hey, Fresno State is just horrible and Air Force is just horrible. Those would be much sort of easier games with no extra added element of travel or rivalry to sort of help you win those games against the horrible teams. All right, coming up next, Ken Bulky joins the show. Fisher has it there. Centers in front. Boy, to shot, he scores. Christian Fisher behind the net, able to find Travis Boyd waiting in the left circle, and he beats Logan Thompson to make it 3-1. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff, featuring Adam Candy. 
Joining us now from Sinbin.Vegas is Ken Bulky. All right, Ken, the most important question, the biggest storyline from Golden Knights training camp preseason leading into the season opener. Is Jake Bischoff going to make this team? Ooh, I don't think he's going to. Oh. He might be on the roster based solely on like the the cap machinations that's that all have I to need. go on. So that's I could all see I need. There, but no, he's not going to be on the team. Come on. He's not going to be the seventh defenseman in the press box for game one? I don't think so, oh. because he would have to find a contract, and that would mean they have to cut somebody. <sighs> Just cut whoever. It's fine. Not a big well, deal, Well, they right? can't. You have to come to a mutual agreement to terminate someone's contract, and I don't see that happening with anybody. Come on. Ridiculous. All right. Is Nick Hague going to sign anytime soon? Uh, well, you define the word soon. <laughs> In the next week. No, probably not. Oh. So wait, wait, and the reason I, I just think that they they're both playing chicken with each other, and to continue playing this game, they're both the next step is how many regular season games do you want to go? So there's got to be some, I, I would imagine. We we've made it to one, so he's not signing today, I don't think. So Ken, what is this about for the Golden Knights? Is it about Nick Hague? Is it about not setting a precedent? Is it simply about the money's not there? What do you think is in the minds of uh, McPhee and McCrimmon? I think it's mostly about what the next contract is. They know where their cap is in the next couple of years. If he signs a short-term deal, he's going to want to do this again down the road. If you put him in a position where you give him too much, then the qualifying offer is going to be too high down You know, the next time that that comes up. There's not exactly a firm number that the cap is going up to over the when it does in two or three years. I think it's just we have the ability to offer him $866,000 for a season. We're going to do that. Why would we put ourselves in any other position? He's not that important to the team. And we'll see if they're ending up being right. Defensively, it should be. They should be fine. But couple injuries he is going to be that important to the team right i was going to say how does nick Hague gain leverage like is the only way he gains leverage is if there are a couple of defensemen that get hurt yeah losses would help i think if they start off really poorly and things aren't going the way that they're supposed to go it, it, there just needs to be turmoil the more the more turmoil there is the better off it's going to go for him but even then like i'm i'm not sure it does anything to make the golden knights break like if they're struggling are you going to sit here and say, oh, yeah, the guy who's 23-year-old defenseman and hasn't played in a whatever, hasn't been on the ice with us for months and hasn't played a game since, I think it was March of last year. Like, he's not going to come in and be great immediately. So I don't know that there's a lot that can go right, but he's got to be hoping for losses and bad defense, I guess. Is Nick Hague going to buy a ticket behind the Golden Knights bench tomorrow <laughs> and wear a Kings jersey to the game? <laughs> I don't think he's going to do that. I would imagine he's still on, under the understanding that he's probably going to play games with the Golden Knights. And when this is all over, uh, if his career goes the way he wants it to, he's probably going to play a lot of games with the Golden Knights for the rest of his career. I would think that would be a bad move on his part. But you know what? I, I've seen weirder things happen in, in uh, sports. All right, I wanted to ask you about something Bruce Cassidy said, um, was it last week, uh, when he essentially said the fourth line was nowhere close to where he wanted it to be. He talked about William Carlson taking on some of the responsibilities he was hoping the fourth line would, and he kind of used, used the phrase shut down line, and I kind of walked out of there thinking that he wanted his fourth line, and maybe it'll end up being Carlson on the third line, 
to play a significant amount of minutes against the other team's mm-hmm. first or second best lines and shut them down. Obviously, he doesn't think they're close to that, but is that a realistically good strategy for this roster? For this roster, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to formulate a set of lines that's going to be able to do exactly what he wants to do. I think it's more of like a philosophical idea of like, I'm going to need times when that fourth line steals minutes from the second line. The the bigger idea to me, I think, is the third line, wherever Carlson is, and, and at the moment it's still the third line. I'd imagine that changes over the course of the next month, but I think he wants that third line to really free up Eichel. So wherever Eichel is, the third line's going to have to do most of the defensive responsibility that Eichel has to take on. And the idea is Eichel's planning, they're probably going to play him 18 minutes. Whoever's on the third line is probably only going to play about 14. That leaves a few extra minutes that the fourth line's supposed to clean up. Uh, <laughs> it's good luck finding a group <laughs> down the bottom six that, that can do it. I, I just I don't see it. We saw Pete DeBoer can be very willing to switch up lines in game. And with as much as is going on with the Golden Knights beyond the top six right now, do you expect to see a lot of that early in the season from Bruce Cassidy? Oh, yeah, I'd be surprised if they make it through a couple of games in a row without having a line switch. I think, obviously, if they're dominating and winning games, I think maybe it holds. But anytime there's any sign of anything going wrong and we, we you know we've seen it a couple of times already in the preseason games where it's like ah, i don't like what this is looking like let's get paul cotter up there with michael i'm not sure if i like this let's put brett howden with stone and stevenson like i think we're gonna see quite a bit of it the defense might stay a little bit steadier but i think as far as the offense goes yeah it's going to be a huge changes constantly and same goes with power plays all right, so give us a prediction here. What do you think the best line, the best uh, combination of three forwards you can put together, what do you think that is at the end of the year? What am, what am I trying to do? Am I trying to make like the best first line, or am I trying to make a best lineup for the team? What, what three-player combination has the best Corsi at the end of the season? Okay, best Corsi at the end of the season. That would have to be Eichel, Stone, I think I might put Stevenson there. I think that's probably your best your best opportunity to get the most offense out of the line would be Stevenson. I could see it being Marcia, so I'm not a huge fan of it being Smith. But yeah, I guess I'll go Stevenson, Michael Stone. So as we look to Thompson, Hill, Brassois, et cetera, what ideally would the Golden Knights like to see? Do, do they want to see one player be so head and shoulders above that it's obvious they have a number one, then there are no questions? Or do they want it to be like the theoretical existence of Leonard and Flurry with a 1A, 1B? Yeah, I think the best case scenario would be all of them are so awesome that it doesn't matter which one we put in. <laughs> right. We'll be fine. We can throw Loren Bersois in there today and put Logan Thompson through uh down to the AHL waiver exempt. No problem. We'll bring him back up tomorrow and he'll get a shutout against Toronto. Like, I think that's the hope. That's highly unrealistic. I think what they're really, like the realistic hope is that there's at least an option at any point. Like, they're going to have two guys on the roster all the time. There's going to be a third in the mix at some point whenever Bassois ready. And the hope is like, well, I don't feel horribly comfortable with any of them, but I guess this is the one I feel the most comfortable with at this moment, so he's going to get the bulk of the of the work. But I can't see anybody going more than 
three games in a row, unless I mean, unless they like shut out the other team three in a row. But even that, I don't see that happening. Uh, we get to the trade deadline. Are we talking about the Golden Knights trying to find a way to trade for a goalie, or do you think th- this is it? What they have on the roster is what they're going to have the entire season. I I don't think so because if you get to the trade deadline and you're in a position where you need a goalie, that must mean you're doing pretty well, and you feel like your goalie's been the problem of what's holding you up. And if that, if the goalie's holding them up with the roster that they have, I don't think they're going to be doing all that well. And if they get to the trade deadline and they're like, well, we need to add, if one of them must be doing good enough, I, I think we're going to at least have the, the idea of like, well, this is good enough. Now, if somebody comes available, maybe they look at it, but I don't think it's going to be priority number one at the deadline. It, more likely they're getting rid of one. I mean, you say that, but this is, I would not be surprised if this team would be out of the playoff picture and still trying to add simply to save themselves and find a way to sneak back into the postseason. Yeah, that would be very dumb. (laughs) You've already criticized them for doing that last year. Yes, they should have sold last year, and I was right. I think I came on with you guys and said (laughs) that this is a great opportunity to sell, a time in the calendar that they've never had the opportunity to take advantage of. And what did they do? They did not sell, and then they paid for it, at, you know. And so, yeah, they, they, they very well could be in a position where they need to sell, and they don't again. But if that's the case, then it's on the owner. Uh, I think it was uh, the Athletic, Dom Lecision, who had sort of playoff odds for the Golden Knights, and they were in the 50% range. And other guys like Jay Fresh on Twitter have put out stuff where it seems like the Golden Knights are a probable, possible playoff team, but not uh, certainly a lock in the Pacific Division. Where do you think they finish in this division? Like, how likely is it that they are in the playoffs this year? I think it's pretty close to a coin flip. Like, you got to figure Calgary, Edmonton, L.A., two of them are going to be good. Better than the Golden Knights good? Probably. So I'm putting at least two above Vegas. I think there's a possibility they finish third. I think, you know, if, if a lot of things go right, they could maybe sneak their way above one of the other of those teams and they finish second. But Vancouver's pretty good. You know, there's. It's possible that Anaheim's better. It's possible that Seattle's better. I doubt it on both of those, but I would guess they finish third or fourth in the division, and then playoffs. If you're in third, you're in fourth. Central's not great either, so I think it's a coin flip. I there's definitely a chance they make it. There's definitely a chance they don't. Frank Saravalli had a bold prediction story last week, and he predicted that Kelly McCrimmon would be the first general manager to be fired. Can you see them firing him in season? Like, would they have to be just awful for them to actually do it in season? Yeah, I've, I've said it before. I, I think Thanksgiving is a huge day for the franchise because I, I think there's a true belief. They've, they've built it up for the last five years about how important it is to be in the playoffs on Thanksgiving. And if they're, if they're a few points out, if they're right in the cut line, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. But if they're bad by Thanksgiving, if it's, you know, say seven, eight points out, and they look at that and say, oh, my goodness, this is not good. Yeah, I think it's very possible that they make a change because you can't change your coach. It's going to be awfully difficult to change your players. And if you are changing your players, why are you allowing the people that have gotten you this, to this position in the first place to go ahead and do it? I think it's very possible they make a change. But they have to be bad. And by bad, I, I mean, like, sixth or seventh in, in the division bad. Like, they have to be really bad. Would they just fire McCrimmon? Or would it be McCrimmon and McPhee? I've been wondering that for <laughs> six years now, how that's going to go down, because they, they've always said they're a partnership. To me, it doesn't make sense to do one or the other. 
If you believe that what, what went right in the first couple of years was McPhee and McCrimmon, and what went wrong is only, is you know, I don't know how to put this, other than they're a partnership. They've said they were a partnership from the beginning. They switched roles. They switched who is the public face, face of the organization. But to me, you, they should both go. But would it shock me if one or the other? No, not at all. All right. He's Ken Bolke from Vegas. Season gets started this week. Thanks, Ken. We appreciate it. See you. So there is Ken Bolke again. Check out Vegas. Jared, um, do you know the dates off the top of your head of Hanukkah? 18th through the 26th. Okay, so it's later in December yeah. this year. All right, that's the key date around here, not this Thanksgiving crap. It's Hanukkah. That's when it's important to be in a playoff spot. All right, we got one last set of tickets to give away. If you want to go see some comedy at the Suncoast, We've got tickets for you right now. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. It's Bonkers Comedy Club every Saturday night in the Suncoast Hotel and Casino. We have two tickets for this Saturday. they got shows at 7 and 9.30. You'll get tickets to whichever one you please. 702-364-1100 if you want to go see Bonkers Comedy Club featuring the best comics from TV and the movies. 702-364-1100. We'll take caller number 5 at 702 702- 364-1100. What matters in those 1.3 seconds between the snap, the hold, and the kick are the things that are going to help the kick go through the uprights. My feelings, you know, my emotions, for 1.3 seconds, they don't really matter. Whether I'm feeling very confident or nervous or even outright afraid. And uh, to show gratitude just for, you know, being able to be in that moment and bring joy to millions of fans who love watching Ravens win football games. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas featuring Adam Candy. Adam Candy from Legal Sports Report filling in for Ed. Um, I believe that was Justin Tucker in the actual postgame press conference. Did you guys hear Justin Tucker in the in the on-field postgame interview where he called himself a system kicker? <laughs> no. So, but what I loved is he has the he has the only celebration that a, I've ever seen a kicker do. So he kind of it was basically the same answer about the whole 1.3 seconds and the holder and all of that. But he said, I, "I'm just a system kicker," and he said it very seriously. Like he's just, "Yeah, I'm just doing my job." But I thought that he might have been trying to go for a joke about Lamar Jackson because they're a system quarterback and all that. And he's like, "Ah, I'm just a system kicker. But I think he was being serious because he kept talking about in the postgame, apparently, too, about the system the Ravens have in that 1.3 seconds. He's just out there to kick the ball and nothing else matters. Don't you think that's exactly how he's become who he is? The guy who can actually take the mental side of kicking and put it aside and say, my job is to run up and punt ball. Like, that's pretty <laughs> much how Justin Tucker described his job. I just enjoy that he's the only kicker that I've ever seen. That I mean, it's it's not the you know the 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 I don't know the thing where you poke your chest and your head and stuff and then point up towards the sky. And it's not grabbing your long snapper and headbutting him. He's got an actual like performance like i made a kick well i splay my hands you could tear your acl that could happen too yeah it could but, be martin grammatica <laughs> yeah just <laughs> avoid doing that and everything will be okay um all right jared i know you want to give a score prediction for raiders chiefs that's j- to give us a scoregami in case you get it right what do you got for us uh 39 to 6 <laughs> we actually not this weekend but two weekends ago we did have a scoregami uh seahawks and lions 
played, what was that, 48, 45 or something like that? Uh, they had a very high-scoring score economy. So you have, what did you say, 39 to 6? Yep. Okay. The winning team will have 39. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we know who you think the winning team will be, even though we don't make you do that around here. 39 to 6. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, both teams have been having some kicking problems. Nah, that could just be uh, two field goals by Daniel Carlson. He only doesn't he, he only misses extra points at Allegiant Stadium. When in I, perfect I think conditions. So. I think someone's going to have to perfect conditions he misses the extra points. Good on the field goes there, but misses the extra points. Um so there you go. 39 to 6. All right, we'll keep that in mind. Do you have something else for us, Jared? I just emailed it to you if you want to You emailed it to me in the middle of the second or segment. No, in the middle of the break. I emailed it to you and I wanted you to look at the Adam, did you see the Santa Clara University men's cross-country team? And Adam muted himself. Yeah. Is this is this the no? Is this the dudes with all the really interesting haircuts? Yes. yes. What's going on yeah. here? <laughs> is this? I, I saw it. Is this the the best thing you can do if you're like not playing basketball or football at a university? Like, if you're, like, in the marching band, is this the best way to be like, I would also like NIL, I, uh, NIL money, but I uh, do not look like the cheerleader from LSU. Okay. Well, I, I, I mean, these guys are basically all going for the dude from St. Peter's look, right? <laughs> like, he got all his NIL money. So that's what the cross-country dudes are, are trying to do. But do you, do you think that these guys tell people that they're college athletes? Oh. Or do you think they just say, like, uh, I, I run? No, they tell people. They definitely do. They, they have to. You're on the cross-country team. You have to. Like, is it if you're on the cross-country team, aren't you kind of like, oh, I'm not good enough for the track team? No, it's a completely different thing. And uh, speaking as someone who <laughs> ran an unfortunate <laughs> amount of cross-country uh, in high school, um, it, like, it's essentially, are you, are you willing to keep running? Like, <laughs> track is just a matter of can you run fast unless you're going to go and do something crazy like, you know, the 3200 or something like that. Like, cross country is more a matter of endurance. I remember very clearly going out to basketball tryouts my freshman year of high school. And the first thing that they made us do was to run all around the gym. And like we just ran lap after lap after lap. And my buddy and I, who had been on the cross country team, were lapping everybody. We weren't any good at basketball, but we were <laughs> lapping everybody. And I just remember this kid who made the team when I didn't just looked up at the two of us going by after like the third time and went, cross country mother effers. <laughs> at least you were good at the start of that. You could run through everybody. That's how you make a basketball team, isn't it? <laughs> 